There's a psalm that talks about God saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Literally, what that means is with all the other things you have to think about God, how how come you choose to focus your attention on us as human beings? And it's a good example of the use of the word mindful. So it is about where do you choose to focus your attention And how do we manage that in the context where there are so many things that could draw our attention? How do you manage to make good decisions about where your attention is focused? And how how do you manage to hold one thing in your attention in the midst of so many other distractions? This is another quote. This is uh, from a guy called Ronald Purser, who actually wrote a book called Muck Mindfulness. So he's one of the critics of where mindfulness has gone, saying that something that started that maybe had something really interesting has just become so generalized and so watered down that he he questions its its, um, relevance and its validity now. But he says mindfulness is is nothing more, in essence, than basic concentration training. It's it's a form of self-discipline, which is interesting in some ways. It is. It is about how do we manage to do that thing that can be so hard to focus our attention in moments when particularly the world is going mad around us. So what do you do particularly when your mind is full? that's the irony of mindfulness, is it is about the challenge of somehow managing to hold calmness and rationality and make good decisions and all the things that we need to do as adult human beings in the context of a world where often our minds are absolutely jammed full and overloaded with so much stuff to think about. How can you hold calm in chaos? How can you continue to be the adult in the moments when it requires mature and sensible responses and actions from you? And how can we teach young people, teenagers, some of these skills because they need to learn how to be more adult, more mature in how they manage the challenges that life throws at them? The original text that talks about mindfulness, the sort of source text, therefore, was a text written by a Buddhist monk who talked about the ability to focus your attention in the present moment. And he talked about the context of washing the dishes, which is a really nice practical application. And, and, and he talked about, what, what do you think about when you're washing the dishes? And he said, do do you actually think about washing the dishes? Or in that moment when you're washing the dishes, is your mind actually thinking about 101 other things? How do you keep your mind on the present moment? And he asked an interesting question. He said, how much would it change things if the next time you wash the dishes, you did just focus on washing the dishes just for a moment? You stopped thinking about all those other things and you stopped worrying about your shopping list and the latest report you've got to do and the test that your kids have got and parents' evening and all the other things that you're thinking about and you just wash the dishes. What if you focused on all of the different things that that involves? The, the warmth of the water on your hands, the way the light catches in the bubbles, the, the squeak, you know, when you get that squeak on that. No one washes dishes anymore, do they, actually? I was telling my daughter about this. She's like, Mom, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, that's because you never wash up anyway. But what if you did the next time you wash the dishes? You did that and you really took a moment and intentionally focused in all the things that are in that present moment. And there is a particular focus on mindfulness in what are we experiencing Because we all know as adults, that's who gets lost, isn't it, in the busyness and the craziness of life. Is is you, the individual, the adult, the person trying to hold all these things. You know, someone says says to you, how are you? Or or, what did you do over the weekend? You know, you have those moments you just think, I have absolutely no idea. I I was asking someone, we we are um, advertising for a role at the moment, and I I just had a moment today where I couldn't remember if the closing date was the end of yesterday or the end of the month, which would be the end of today. So I said said to one of our team, when does does that role close? And and she was evidently as out of it as me. She said, the end of January. But what's really funny is I was just like, oh, right, end of the month, and just carried on. The rest of my team were like, you two are both crazy. 
That's the opposite of mindfulness. When your mind is just so full, you've got no focus, you're not concentrating, you've lost yourself, you've lost your basic sanity, or you've just lost contact with what's going on for you. Your physical body, your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts. What do you feel right now? I have no idea. So mindfulness takes really quite a simple, basic concept and then says, what if we did, what if we applied it to our lives? And what's really interesting, therefore, is how mindfulness has caught on something that seems to really scratch a 21st century itch. There is something about the way we live right now in our culture, the energy, the drive, the busyness, loads of things that are fantastic about our culture, but that mindfulness really does seem to be an antidote for. Some of the biggest challenges that face us in our culture, not not necessarily clinical challenges, but the kind of everyday just difficulties of normal life. You know, as these evenings where we've shared here in, in Watford, we've talked about so many of these challenges that they may not be clinical issues. You may not ever going to be diagnosed with something, but they sure do bring you down. And they sure do just make you feel like you're not operating on, on all four cylinders. You're not flourishing. You're not reaching the best that life could be. It just feels like these things are holding you back. And mindfulness seems to have caught something in the general population, not just in this nation, but, but in, across the whole Western world where we are so busy and so driven. This is um, another quote from that John Kabat-Zinn guy. He says, um, our entire society is suffering from attention deficit disorder big time. And what he means by that is not literally attention deficit disorder, but what he means is we are struggling with what do we focus our attention on? How do we manage all of the demands on us? Because they are on us all the time, aren't they? When's the last time that you did nothing? Think about the times in life where 10, 20, 30 years ago, you might have done nothing, like when you're waiting for a bus or a train. Because now, of course, what you do straight away is get out this. And if you're lucky, you read the news or listen to a podcast or something, or you might have emails you've got to answer or texts or something like that, or maybe you've got to check your social media. Like, you don't do nothing, do you? In fact, even when you're trying to do not nothing but trying to do something relaxing, watching TV, we don't do nothing because we tend to get one of these out. We live in a world that's very 24-7, that the, the demands on our mind are potentially quite continuous. And that's another interesting application, therefore, of mindfulness, is, is it's about practices that can help us not to be overwhelmed in moments where you feel, might feel like you are drowning in information, you're drowning in demands on your time. You feel like you might go under. Mindfulness as a tool, as a simple thing that we can learn, offers potentially things that you can do in those moments to keep your cool, to keep your calm, to keep your sanity. You know, am am I the only adult in 21st century life who regularly thinks, this is it, this is how I'm going to have my nervous breakdown, this moment now because of that child, or this email, or that problem, you think, good, well, at least I know, and it's all going to be over now, and then it passes, you think, oh no, actually, it was okay. Mindfulness potentially offers us a way to deal with those things. And and that is a very tempting, very very drawing uh, offer, isn't it? So in particular, it's about how can we turn down our stress response? How can we manage things like difficult emotions in those moments so we can keep our cool? You know, that there's that if poem, isn't it? It's another thing that I find my, I quote to myself all the time. You know, if you can stay calm when all the other people around, what is it, when all the world around you is in chaos. That does just feel like my normal life sometimes. Anybody else feel like that? Anybody else, I was trying, having this conversation again with teenagers. Do you remember those logic problems you used to do before phones, like when you were on long trips, where the, it was like the lo- you had the big grid and you had to put all the ticks and crosses in? Have you ever tried explaining what they were to a teenager? Let me tell you, don't, because it's really hard to explain and they have no idea what you're talking about. But again, sometimes life feels like one of those problems. You know there is a solution. There is a way you can do all this. You just haven't figured it out yet. You've got to do all the ticks and crosses and work it out. So the last thing that mindfulness is about is ultimately about choice. 
Because what happens in those moments, if we don't have a tool, if we don't have skills we can apply, is that we are overwhelmed and our emotions literally take control of our mind. And we'll, we'll see later on that in those moments, your brain, your emotions literally can do that. If they become too powerful, they can switch off. Well, they can turn right down your rational, cognitive, analytical mind so that you become almost instinct-driven in those moments. You're making instinctive, impulsive decisions. We know that your ability to make um, to make to do what's called um, to slow processing, which is where you're thinking things through, basically, is is really badly affected in moments of stress and pressure. You are much more prone to what's called fast processing, impulsive, quick decisions based on rules of thumb that your brain has. The problem is when we use fast processing, we're much more likely to make mistakes. We're also much more likely to, to do things like make decisions that are based on implicit racism, implicit sexism, things we would never want to influence our decision-making normally, but in the moments when the pressure's on, we make flick, quick decisions, and they're not always the best ones. And the thing is, is if you don't have tools that you can use in those moments of pressure, then you don't have a choice because those impulsive decision-making processes just take over. So mindfulness offers you choice. It offers you the ability to calm yourself, to drop your physiological stress level and make sure that in those moments, at least if you do make those decisions, you're doing it through choice, not just through impulse. And so that's a very important part of adult life. If we can improve our mindfulness, our awareness of ourselves, can we change the way that we might act or react I don't know how many of you have had those moments where you have done something that you look back later and wish you had not done. I once lost my temper with my husband and in a very dramatic moment hurled my mobile phone at him, left the room very flamboyantly, slammed the door and then remembered I actually had to make some calls. So I had to go and ask for it back, which really spoiled the dramatic gesture. He was just like, here's your phone, thank you very much. So what if we could reintroduce the, the choice into those moments? So this is what mindfulness ultimately is. Let me just briefly touch, therefore, on what isn't mindfulness, because that feels important. And our, our society, we, lo we love a bandwagon, don't we, in our society, and we love to jump on it. And particularly when it offers easy solutions to difficult problems, we like the idea of that, yet we are totally going for that. And as a result, there has been a move away from some of the original sort of detail and complexity of mindfulness. I, I, I am, cards on the table, I am not a mindfulness practitioner. I'm a psychologist. I know about mindfulness, and I, I know some skills in mindfulness, and I can teach some mindfulness based stuff. I am not a fully detailed mindfulness practitioner. I have friends who are. And their biggest frustration is when people go on some quick course to learn a 10-minute thing and then say, oh yeah, I know how to do mindfulness. They're like, that is not mindfulness. So what is mindfulness not? Number one, I would say it is not a quick fix. We have to be careful that we're not just jumping on a bandwagon and feeling like we've ticked the mindfulness box and therefore everything should be okay. And the reason that's important is because if people encounter mindfulness in that context and it doesn't help them, then they either just, just, just discard it totally and think, well, it's useless, or they carry guilt. It must be something wrong with me because this didn't help, but it's supposed to really help this problem, but it didn't for me. And, and we see both things happen. And in some contexts where mindfulness is practiced, what we're talking about really isn't mindfulness. So apologies to teachers in the room, but schools would be a classic example of this. So I, some of my friends go into schools and work with teenagers and young people teaching mindfulness, but they will do six, eight-week courses with those young people in order to teach them the skills well. I do it one-to-one -one with people, and it's, it's hard to learn mindfulness, particularly if you're struggling with something like anxiety. So a 10-minute slot at the beginning of form time from a teacher who's read it in a book may be a good thing to do, but let's just be careful about how we explain to young people and teenagers what that is. It is a mindfulness exercise. It's not sort of fully-fledged mindfulness. So we need to be a little bit careful around the quick fix thing, and this, of course, is what the author of Mook Mindfulness was concerned about. The second thing that mindfulness isn't or, or isn't solely, I think, is very important to, to detach it from a religious perspective. 
So particularly because I work in a church, I'm a church leader just up the road in Hitchin, and um, I also am the director of a Christian organization working with mental and emotional health. And I get a lot of people saying, oh, mindfulness, oh no, it's very Buddhist. Not sure we should do, have anything to do with that. And the thing is, is that the, the, the Buddhists in the Eastern religion perspective they were the people who caught something incredible in the power of mindfulness and the importance of applying it and teaching it and doing that really well. Let's give them credit for it. But, but they don't have ownership of the entire concept of, of attention. And like I say, for those of us who come from a Christian faith, the Bible talks about mindfulness. The concept of prayer and meditation is something steeped in ancient Christian tradition. And there is a whole tradition in some um, aspects of the church looking at how to do that better. They didn't call it mindfulness, but it's very, very similar in terms of the skills and the tools and the practices that it encourages. So what I think we need to do is separate the cognitive, the psychological, the attention-based skills from whichever religious perspective we want to add to it. And I say that as someone who probably is quite tempted to add some religious aspect to it, and be aware that it, it can exist separately to those things. And again, why that's important is, is just for clarity and honesty in terms of what people are getting. So I have had talked to people who have wanted to do mindfulness training because maybe their GPs recommended that they go on it. They've gone on a course and basically they have been taught something that is much more about religious meditation. And that's fine if, if people know that's what they're going for, but it might not be mindfulness. So let's just be clear about the separation. And I say that, as I say, as a church leader myself, we teach a mindfulness course. Uh, we teach a couple of different courses in our community and we try to be really clear about at what point mindfulness starts and something religious or we, we like to say we're never religious but at what point something faith-based starts so we tend to teach it a bit like tonight we'll have an initial session and then a coffee break and then we'll do something that's looking at some biblical biblical perspectives after that so it's really clear which bit is the mindfulness skill and which bit is our faith-based perspective on that so let's just be clear about the division the third thing of what isn't mindfulness, and I say this slightly carefully, is I would say it's not a treatment as such. So mindfulness is a practice, it's a skill, and it is very, very useful in lots of spaces for lots of people. And some of those spaces, and for some of those people, may be where individuals are struggling with issues like anxiety and stress. But we have to be very cautious about using it on its own as a kind of cure-all treatment. And so you will, people may well have read articles, concerns around, is mindfulness risky? Is it dangerous? Is it bad? Because inevitably, when it became so popular, we then did start to get some people saying, well, hang on, I've had a bad experience with this. So there are some people for whom mindfulness is not the best skill. It's not the best practice for them to learn. They might struggle with it. It might worsen some of the things they're struggling with. There might be good reasons why it's not so sensible for them. Again, my friends who are trained mindfulness practitioners screen very carefully for these things and are very careful if they're using it with clinical populations about who they do and don't use it with. Again, what I would say to you is just, therefore, we need to be careful if we're teaching in-depth mindfulness practices in a group context where we may not know what issues people are struggling with. And most spaces where people have had bad outcomes are done on things like that. So retreats, spaces where people go, there isn't any good screening, there's no good clinical screening, and um, sort of courses or sessions are done in big groups like that. And one person in the group has had a bad reaction or struggled with it. We need to be careful, particularly for people who are struggling with deeply painful or emotionally um, distressing histories and past, particularly trauma, or where there is a complex or detailed psychiatric diagnosis alongside some of the things that they're struggling with. It doesn't mean they can't do it, but it does mean that we need to be appropriately cautious about how and when and in what context we teach these skills. So mindfulness is not the answer to absolutely everything, but it is a useful skill to learn. And is it suitable for everybody? Probably not. But it is quite a good thing to have in terms of your basic toolkit of things that you can do in those moments. And there are some fairly simple exercises, some of which we will have fun with tonight. 
which are interesting in terms of improving your skill and your abilities to do things like hold difficult emotions. But overall, the most valuable thing that mindfulness does is something that we can all benefit from as human beings because it does make us stop and pause and just focus our attention on ourselves for once. And just take a moment to think, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing in this moment? What it does ultimately for any individual is it says, you are important. In this moment, in all the madness of your life and all the responsibilities of your life and all the draws and demands on you, actually, you do matter. And in some ways, maybe almost whatever we did that reinforced that would probably be a good thing for us to learn. So there's, there's lots of good stuff in mindfulness, um, but we have to be aware of some of the limitations. So what we're going to do uh, now for the next half hour or so is um, in a fairly light way, because as I say, my friends who teach mindfulness, normally it would be a six to eight week course. So let's be very clear. We're not going to do a full mindfulness course now, but we are, we'll, we are going to look at some applications of mindfulness to five areas of life and living. And we will do some simple exercises that are a good starting point to think about how mindfulness might influence each of those areas. So for all all of these things take part join in if you want to don't feel under any obligation if you are aware of things for you that might make these things difficult or it might be wiser for you just to observe then please do feel free to react or respond as much or as little as you want to to what we're going to do but it is going to be very light so the first thing we're going to do is we are going to look at some mindful eating now yes <laughs> Mindful eating. Now, the reason I put this one first is because it is also a good exercise to understand and ponder just a little bit more what mindfulness is basically about. Because mindless eating is something probably we've all done. Have you ever had that very distressing experience where you have got a very good chocolate bar and you have sat down to eat it whilst working and in the midst of work you have gone to eat your chocolate and it's gone and you've eaten it? And you don't really remember eating it, and, and it's gone, and you've eaten the whole thing. And it's terribly disappointing. Has anyone ever had that happen? Yeah, I've had that happen. We lived in France for two years. Many of you who've heard me speak before will know. The French think the British are crazy for the way they eat. They would never do it. So in France, if you are going to eat something, you stop everything. If you're going to have a cup of coffee even, you don't like have it at your desk. In fact, you would never snack at your desk. My husband, who is obviously British and is a lawyer, a uh, perpetual snacker, literally used to hide snacks in his desk drawer because it was so frowned upon in his Parisian office to snack whilst working. But he, being a lawyer and a Brit and from London, couldn't bear to stop working. So he would open the drawer and like shovel in snacks secretly and then carry on working. But I, I would say that as a culture, we are quite good at mindless eating. So what we're going to do is an exercise in mindful eating and just think, well, well, what might that involve and what does it teach us about the wider practice of mindfulness? Now, this exercise is usually done with uh, these things which you can see on the screen, which is some raisins. Now, I, I don't think raisins are very exciting and at least one of the people in my household thinks that they are absolutely poisonous and should be banned. So I always do this exercise with something much more interesting, which I will come to in one second. But let me share with you, uh, I think, my favourite quote of the evening, which is from a columnist called Kate Pickett, who said this, so remember this for the rest of your, your days. The ability to focus for a few minutes on a single raisin isn't silly if the skills it requires are the keys to surviving and succeeding in the 21st century. So we are not going to explore the ability to focus for a few minutes on a single raisin. We're going to go and use some of these instead, which is Maltesers. So I have some assistants around the room who are going to hand out some Maltesers. Now, when you get it, I know you just want to chuck it in and crunch. Don't, let's not get into the whole do you suck or do you crunch debate, because that's like a personality profiling task. And I don't think we should even go there tonight. We'll do that another night. But let's hand them out. When you get it, you might want to hold it in the palm of your hand, because, again, I've done this exercise with primary children, and let me tell you, teachers, it gets really messy. I did not think that through. It melts. So we're older, so it should be less messy. So we're going to hand them out, and I'll wait till everybody's got one, and then we're going to be a bit mindful with our Malteser. 
I said, this does remind me of communion, but just in a slightly different way for those of you who are churchgoers. <laughs> there might be. Though there's a lot more chatter than in communion, yeah. Okay, how are we doing as every, everybody... Where are we up to with the Maltesers? Hold your Malteser in the air when you've got one, and then I'll know, and the team will know. Right, they're scurrying round. <laughs> okay, how are we doing? Everybody got one? Anybody feeling bereft and Malteserless? It's late on a Monday night and it's raining. We need a Malteser, don't we? Just one, though. Okay, so when you've got your Malteser, I think we're nearly round. You can, so when we're, when we're being mindful, ideally what we want to do is employ all of our senses in the current moment. So pause what you're doing. Draw your focus off the room, and I want you to hold it in the palm of your hand. And first of all, let's, let's just look at your Malteser. So they are there. Look at the color. Look at the texture. Is it smooth? Has it got imperfections on it? Really, you might want to turn it around. Let's just really look at it and just focus for a minute on it and pause. I haven't got one, so I'm just looking at an empty hand. That's fine. <laughs> I can't eat Maltesers and talk because they really make you salivate. Then you're like drooling and trying to speak. It just, it's not good. So look, next sense, you might want to smell it. Can you smell the chocolate? No, I'm good. I really can't eat one and do this at the same time. It's bad. So smell the chocolate. What does it smell like? What about the texture? Touch is another one. Can you feel it? Is it, is it a bit melty in your hand? Yeah, some of you are like, seriously, Kate, just get on to eating it. It's melting again everywhere. Okay, so, so you, you can eat it. So eat it, but do, as you eat it, it, enjoy the taste and the texture. Can you feel it on your tongue? I'm not going to dictate whether you crunch or whether you just let it melt. But whichever you go for, just pause in that moment. Can you taste it? Can you feel the textures as the warmth of your mouth melts the chocolate and you can feel the crunch and your, your sense, your body responds to the sugar and the saliva starting to rush in. And it's a good moment. Mm. You all look very, very happy. <laughs> I should have taken this photo for my Instagram. It's just a room of people going, mm. So that is obviously a light-hearted exercise in mindfulness. But do you see the point? And actually, the French... The French thing is really interesting. So the, the French do have this thing like, if you're going to eat a cream cake or some chocolate or something, like, why would you do that on the run and not enjoy it? If it's worth doing, surely it's worth stopping. And that becomes your entire focus. And it is interesting to think, well, how would it change the way that we ate and the way that we live the rest of our lives if we applied that? And said, instead of trying to do a hundred things at once, what if we did try to make space for things that really matter? But also, the, the, the French concept of, of what is a mindful pause, I mean, they, they call it le pause. So pausing to have a coffee. Or, and generally in France, if you have a coffee, you will quite often have a little treat with it. They're, they're very boundaried and very, very, uh, they're, they've got really good control, self-control. Just a small snap. But you, do, you stop and you do it properly. That moment of doing something for yourself and valuing yourself enough in that moment to pause and stop is well worthwhile. And when we think about just little, little practices, habits, rhythms, what's the culture in your office? Do, do, you, do you take lunch breaks in the culture in your organization? Really We've had some really interesting discussions as a, as a church leadership team recently around habits and rhythms and practices. And one of them was, you know, because generally, like a lot of offices and, and organizations, we're a lot of us working flexible time, different hours. A lot of us choose to work through lunch because it's the most efficient way to get our hours done. We've got kids and childcare and stuff we're juggling. But the problem is that sets a culture where nobody ever stops to eat. 
And actually, if we look at simple things that you can introduce into your daily rhythms and practices, stopping at lunchtime, getting out of the stressful environment of your work, getting some fresh air, going and sitting on a bench, eating your sandwich, even if you only stop for 20 minutes, that practice has been shown to have a really powerful impact on people's stress levels, on their ability, particularly in times of pressure, to manage and respond well to what life is throwing at them. So it's worth us thinking about it. Now, we mustn't be too hard on ourselves. We're not going to be able to mindfully eat every morsel for the rest of our lives. That's just not the way life goes. Some days I think I would never eat anything if I tried to do that. But what if we did think, are there some practices we can build in? Are there some mindful things that we can do? So... uh, when my daughter was little, less so with my son for lots of reasons, but we, we used to have quite a standard practice that when we got home, we would just always have half an hour at the end of the, my working day, her school day or whatever she'd been doing, where she would get a drink and a snack, I would have a cup of tea, and we would just, we would, she would go her way, I would go mine. And that was quite a mindful pause moment for me, not because I was practicing some kind of deep breathing mindfulness exercise, but just because I allowed myself to stop and enjoy that moment. What's yours? And particularly in times when life is throwing a lot of stress at you, what are the habits and rhythms that you can build into your life for things like that? Eating and drinking is something we have to do regularly. So if we can make some of those things mindful moments, headspace moments, us moments, that could be a good practice. So that's number one, mindful eating. I'm afraid if you particularly enjoyed the Maltese, the things are only going to go downhill from here because I have no more chocolate. Number two, then, is about mindful breathing. And apologies, some of you will have done some of these exercises before because I have taught them as part of uh, the evenings we've done on stress and anxiety. But it's always good to practice again, so we're going to run through them again. Some interesting physiology around your breathing and how it links into your physiological stress system. Did you know you have a a coordinated system in your body that coordinates the response of nerves, hormones, body systems like your heart and lungs, even metabolic systems like the level of sugar in your blood. It's incredibly complex. And there are basically two systems. There's a stress-on system and then there's a stress-off system. So the stress-off system does all the housekeeping and background stuff. The stress-on system is about helping you respond to the urgent demands of life. Anxiety and anger and emotions like that would also harness your physiological stress system. What's interesting is the way that your breathing is related to triggering or changing the levels in those systems. So roughly speaking, and I am skirting over some quite complex physiology here, so apologies for that. But when you breathe in, it triggers your stress on system. One of the things that we naturally do when we're quite stressed because of the need to be ready to respond is we do what's called hyperventilating. We start to breathe more shallow and we breathe faster, which is great if you need to to respond to a bear attack or something, but less helpful if you're in the middle of a really stressful meeting or giving a presentation to a room full of people or something. So we know that that aspect of breathing is linked with increasing your stress level. And it also changes some of the physiology in your body so that you can start to feel quite weird because the level of important things like oxygen and carbon dioxide changes. You get weird symptoms. And if you don't recognize what those are and they make you feel anxious because you think, gosh, well, suddenly I feel really bad and I feel sick or faint or dizzy or and you think, what is happening? That makes you anxious, which triggers more of those symptoms, which triggers more anxiety. And that can very quickly become a vicious cycle, which is behind a panic attack, particularly if you don't recognize any involvement of emotion in those things. So one of the most classic presentations I get from adults these days where stress is concerned is the first sign of trouble is that they will be in the middle of something and out of the blue will experience a dramatic and overwhelming panic attack. And their experience of it is almost purely physical. And many people call ambulances. They genuinely think they're dying. Panic attacks are incredibly dramatic and frightening, particularly the first time that you have them. And and this is the opposite of mindfulness. It it is when we are so busy, so overwhelmed, so distracted, so much of our attention drawn away from our own physicality that we don't even notice our own emotional state. We don't notice the beginning of an emotion like anxiety starting to rise. We only notice it when the physical symptoms of it become overwhelming and it's pushed us into a full-blown panic attack. 
So breathing, breathing in and, and its association with panic and the stress system is very significant. What's useful, though, is that breathing out, particularly the type of breathing out that mindfulness exercises will teach, triggers this more calming system. So it dampens down the activity on that system. And so people like athletes, people who have to learn to concentrate very well, who have to have a good control of their stress reaction, will learn breathing exercises as part of keeping a good control in moments that are quite stressful. So if you've got to take a penalty shootout at key moments in a football match, for example, that is an incredibly stressful moment, but you've got to hold it. And breathing, doing that well, is a great way of calming and holding control in those moments. Breathing is also the single most effective way to drop quickly the level of an emotion like anxiety if you are on the brink of panic or if you are in panic. A slight caution that if you are in a full-blown panic attack and somebody comes at you and starts trying to make you do the sort of exercises I'm going to teach, you will probably want to kill them. So just be a little bit aware and a little bit sensible. If somebody's in full-blown panic, this is not a good time to do for the first time a mindful breathing exercise. So when we learn some of these breathing exercises, they are about control. They're about the balance between how much we're breathing in. They're about learning to do these longer controlled out breaths that will cool us down, calm down the physiological reaction. But the best time to practice them at first is moments where you are very calm and very safe. Because like any skill, they take time to learn. So don't try it for the first time in a moment that's hugely stressful. Practice it lots at home in calm moments. And then gradually, as you get better at it, you'll find you start to be able to apply that skill to moments that are more stressful, to times when your anxiety or stress level is heightened. So we're going to do some very simple mindful breathing exercises. So as I've said, those of you who've been here before, you might want to put your hands on your ribcage. Mindful breathing is about using your whole lung space. So if you think of your lungs as like a balloon, we can become prone to really only breathing using the top two thirds. We want to take some breaths that open your lungs up right to the bottom. So you'll see on the screen there's a video which you might find as a helpful visual tool for this. Because you can visualize your lungs expanding up, keep going right to the full extent. So you might want to breathe in time to this whilst you've got your hands on your case. So if you're doing this right, your hands will literally come apart because they're at the bottom of your lungs. And if you're filling your lungs right to the bottom, you'll feel your hands start to come apart. Yeah. So you can practice doing some good breaths in time to that. If you uh, Google, go on YouTube and Google, uh, breathe in time to this, you'll find lots of versions of this very simple video. And some of them you can change the speed because obviously for some people this is too fast, too slow, whatever. You can adjust it up and down. So it's a useful visual aid. The next thing we're going to try is something called 478 breathing which we have done before. Now, four, seven, eight breathing plays with the balance between each phase of a breath. So the four, seven, eight isn't totally crucial. If you're like, oh man, I can't remember, was it three, six, nine, five? In some ways, that doesn't matter. What it is about is making sure that you don't breathe in too much, that you take some time where you're holding the breath in your lungs so that good gas exchange can take place, but also, crucially, that you do a nice long breath out. So as I say, if you've got someone in the midst of a panic attack, which I've, I've supported people in, in full-blown panics a lot of times, remember the basic principles, but start really low. What you're trying to do is get them to breathe in a little bit less, hold it a tiny bit, and breathe out a little bit slower, and gradually move them into a calmer space. Do not start with like, right... You have to breathe in for four and then hold it for seven. And no, that's not going to work if they're in full panic. But remember the basic concept. We are going to do it properly for seven, eight. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a breath in for a count of four. We're going to hold it for a count of seven. And then we're going to breathe out for a count of eight. So it's a long, controlled breath out. I say to teenagers, imagine that you are blowing out the candles on my birthday cake because I have lots of them. It's going to take a while. You're going to need to control that breath. 
So that's what we're going to do. So if you want, you can put your hands on your ribcage, or if you think you've nailed that now, then you don't need to. I am going to count and not breathe, obviously, because, again, I can't really lead this and do it at the same time. Feel free to observe if you prefer. So if you're ready, we are going to take a breath in. Two, three, four. And then hold it. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then breathe out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Does everyone feel calm? This is such a good evening thing to do on a Monday evening. It's like, ah, I could totally take the rest of my week now. Now, what I would say to you, get that mindfulness breathing exercise, it's quite hard. I, I don't find it easy to do, and the more stressed you are, the harder it will be. It is a really good, quick moment of, oh my goodness, I need to catch my breath here. I need to just get my head back on track. I need to not freak out. I need to handle this well. So it is really good, I would say, for the ambush situation. Something has happened. You need to think calmly. You've just got like one minute. Take a couple of mindful breaths. It will help you to drop your stress level. Studies would show that this sort of breathing is particularly effective also for insomnia. So if you are someone who struggles with getting off to sleep, doing a bit of mindful breathing, doing some four, seven, eight breathing like this can really help. Again, I would say, though, if this is something that is interesting, you're like, oh, actually, I found that really helpful, really interesting. Think about doing some proper mindfulness training. Find some local courses that are going on. Get involved in some proper training because this is so surface level. It's not intended to be teaching proper mindfulness. It's just a taster, really, of what it is that we're aiming at. Some people find that focusing on their breathing, particularly if they're anxious, makes them more anxious. So this is one of those cases where I would say, if that's you or the person you're supporting, just be aware that this might be unhelpful. One of the useful tricks with breathing is um, singing and humming. In order to sing or particularly to hum, apparently because of the physiology of the vocal cords, I don't know why, but this is apparently true. In order to do it, you have to support the sound really well with your breath. And of course, you have to breathe out in a long, controlled way. So singing and particularly humming is great for calming yourself down, for dropping physiological stress. So if you are struggling with stress, think about joining a choir. You don't have to join one that takes it super seriously. Join one of these ones where it's more about sociability and making new friends and just having a good old sing-song because the combination of that and all the other good things that are involved in that are very good for helping with stress and particularly things like anxiety. When I'm working with young people, I will often teach an exercise for managing stress and anxiety, which is about humming a favorite song. So I'll teach them to practice at home with their favorite song, just humming along to it, and then to put it on their phone or an MP3 or whatever. And if they're in a moment when they get stressed out and they can feel the panic building, they can literally just nip to the loo, headphones in, listen to the song. And that can be a really helpful skill, a way to do some mindful breathing that doesn't focus on breathing, it focuses on the song. So just be aware of that as a few variations. Okay, we should, we should move on to the other things. We're going to talk a little bit, therefore, about mindful emotions. So the, the next few things are less practical and more theoretical, might I say. So if you've enjoyed the audience participation stage, you can, you can sit back now and just be more cerebral and think about some of these things. I want to recap a little bit on the way emotions are designed to work. So again, if you've heard me speak here before, this will be some, some reviewing of information for you, but I'm aware it will be new to some people, so bear with me while I run through this. So this is a model that I use to talk about the way emotions, particularly negative emotions, are designed to work. They have an important job to do in your brain, and their job is to alert you that something significant might be going on in the world around you. And when your brain detects the risk that something significant might be happening, it triggers that physiological system that I'd spoken about. And first of all, therefore, so two main things happen out of that. First of all, it is about physical changes, physiological changes in your body. And they have two main purposes. One is that they grab your attention, because particularly for the important emotions like anxiety and frustration, you feel them. They're very physical emotions. 
The second thing is they set you up to act or react in case you need to. So if you do need to run away or fight something or have a good argument, you are physically ready to do that just in case you do. In the meantime, your analytical mind has been triggered to to look into what is the situation that has triggered this? Is there something going on that you need to respond to or is it a false alarm? So I will talk about how emotions like that are basically smoke alarms. Their job is to get your attention so that your analytical brain can check it out and determine, is it a real crisis or is it a false alarm? And most of the time that your smoke alarm goes off, your house is not burning down. And emotions are very similar, particularly emotions like anxiety and worry. Their job is to get you to check it out. And in their, in their normal experience of emotions, therefore, in the ideal experience of emotions, once they've done their job, a bit like a, a match being struck, they burn the length of the match and then they burn out. Now, the problem with emotions is that we often don't experience them like that, particularly the difficult ones. And mindfulness and mindful exercises are about helping you to control that physiological reaction to avoid two of the major pitfalls that can become associated with our emotions. And they are two of the ways that emotions can most commonly cause us problems. And again, many of you will have heard me talk about these before. The first one is something called emotional hijack. Now, this is the thing that I was telling you about, where your brain can turn down your rational, analytical mind and and really almost turn you into an instinctive creature. So it is for the absolute crisis. You've stepped out into the road and there's a bus coming at you. You just need to do something. And so it, it can dial down your rational analytical mind, dial up your physiological response so that you respond very instinctively in the moment. And only later do you then have a chance to think about what you did and think whether that was a good thing to do. Now, we've all experienced emotional hijack. We've all had moments when we feel on the edge of panic, on the edge of overwhelm, on the edge of losing it. You know when you have that moment, those of you who've got kids or if you work teachers, I have no idea how you do that job because they must drive you crazy sometimes. But you know that moment where you think, I am, I am so about to just lose it. Or maybe with your spouse. I don't, I'm sure none of you have marital moments like that. But you know when you think, I am so just about to lose it any minute. And you, you know that feeling when you are about to lose control. Everyone, everyone had experiences that good, not just me? No, that's good to know. So that is the moment when this switch is about to happen. But there is a gradual, there's a bit of a gradual process, and then it's a bit like going over a waterfall. You get to a point where you dramatically lose the ability to cognitively control. I often find that's the moment when people want to rationalize with you. Yeah. Or we do it to our teenagers, those of us who have teenagers. They are freaking out about something because teenage emotions are more dramatic. They experience more hijack than us. And we want to sit down and have a conversation. They are so not in that place at that moment. What we need to do is let them calm down. And then maybe they'll be in a place where we can talk about it. The moments when I am really mad with my husband are not the moments for him to talk to me. Great example of this, literally this morning, uh, my husband has a very annoying habit of leaving the bathroom window open. He leaves the house before I do. I am usually late because I'm just that sort of person. And I am literally, this happened to me this morning, I am reversing out of the drive because the meeting I am supposed to leave lead is about to start. And I am not at it. And I look up, and he's left the window open again. So this morning, purely for the fun and cathartic release, I phoned him to shout at him. He was in his office. It was not my most rational moment, but it felt good. So he didn't take the call, the blighter. And later, when I phoned him and I said, why did you not take my call when you knew I was phoning to shout at you for leaving the bathroom window? And he said, because that would not have been a good moment for us to have a conversation. Bother, he must have listened to one of my talks. (laughs) Because he's right, but I really wanted to shout at him. And instead, I shouted at his aunt's phone, which was a lot less satisfying. So those are not the moments to have the rational conversation because you've lost it. So mindfulness is about actually what do I do when actually it's okay that I shouted at his aunt's phone. He's very, he's, he's very understanding. And it was his fault. He sent me a very apologetic text later on. But what do you do in the moments when you have to keep your cool? What when you are supposed to be the adult in the room? 
What if you have a job like you're a teacher or a doctor or you have a crisis situation? It is your job to be the person who is calm. Mindfulness can be a very helpful tool to help you avoid hijack by recognizing those moments when you're about to go over a waterfall and dropping your physiological level. The second way that our emotions can catch us is uh, when those matches set fire to thoughts in our minds and we end up dealing with emotional bonfires, not a match, because it's set fire to thoughts and anxieties and worries and other issues. And what mindfulness enables us to do with our emotions and our thoughts is hold them, almost as though at a distance, almost as though we're observing them, without judging them, without it triggering other things, to be able to pause and say, do you know what, I feel this in this moment, and that's okay. And, and have something that we can do in that moment as we hold our own emotions and reflect on them and react to them. So if you are struggling with an emotion like anxiety or frustration and you need to learn a way of managing them, mindfulness can be really helpful, helpful in those two ways. But again, I would say to you, if that's you or someone you know, find a course, get a good teacher, go on some good training, consider one-to-one -one even, because it's hard. It's not easy to learn skills like this, and particularly if you're thinking of a teenager, because mindfulness is often uh, suggested for teenagers, it's even harder for them to learn these adult tricky skills. So think about how can you do that properly. I love this, this quote. This is from the mindfulness guy again who has a certain way with words. He says, mindfulness zealots believe that paying closer attention to the present moment without passing judgment has the revolutionary power to transform the whole world. It's magical thinking on steroids. That's a good phrase, isn't it? Okay. So I want to just fairly rapidly talk about two more quick applications of mindfulness and then we'll, we'll take our break. The first one is around exercise. So we've talked about the mindful eating, now we have to do the mindful exercise. There's a whole space around how is exercise helpful to us psychologically. And there's been lots of debate over the years. We know that mindfulness is good for you, and we've started to become quite interested in how it can be used to counteract some of the 21st century challenges like depression, anxiety, stress. But there's a lot of interest into why. What is it about exercise that's so helpful? What is it that can be good about it? How does it help? One of the things we know is that just getting out into the fresh air is really good for us getting out, getting away, getting into nature. And this has really raised the question of how we can apply mindfulness to exercise to really get the best out of what we're doing. So I, I, am, I am a big, big cyclist. Today's weather is probably one of the only examples of when I might not go cycling, but I do quite like cycling in the rain, maybe not quite as much as today. But there is something about getting out, getting away, getting some headspace that is very helpful. And it's interesting to think, therefore, about how can we make our exercise more useful? Because the problem with exercise, we say to people, get some exercise, it'll help your mental health. Now, it does help just in terms of the hormones it triggers, but most people, especially at this time of year, what they do is they join a gym, and then they spend the rest of the winter feeling guilty for not going. And I'm not sure that's really gonna help your mental health that much. So it's worth thinking about what can you do? And there is something about getting out into the outdoors that is valuable. Some other tips about mindfulness exercise, therefore. Number one is that, what if you tried listening in the great outdoors? What if you tried to just take your headphones out for a moment? Next time you go for a walk, instead of listening to a podcast, or what if you listen to the world around you? What if you just took a moment? What if you took a, a mindful pause in the middle of your exercise? So I, I'm a cyclist. I love to bike. I, I like to listen to podcasts too because I like the input or I like to listen to music. I have some excellent playlists that I listen to depending on my mood for different rides. But on some of the rides I do, I have key points in the ride where I often stop. It's a good view. It's a quiet place. There's a, there's a bench. And if I'm not too busy... Not if I haven't got to cram the whole ride in in a short period of time, I will build into that exercise a pause moment and just stop for a minute and just think about what is life throwing at me right now? How am I feeling? What's going on? Because how often in life do we get those moments? So maybe you can introduce something like that 
to your exercise. The other is to think about how can we sometimes make exercise an, an exercise in mindfulness. So one of the classic things that people talk about <clears throat> is going for a mindful walk. And much as we ate the Malteser, that might be about whatever you're doing, using all of your senses. So it is about listening, looking around. How, how many times when you're walking somewhere do you not take in the beauty of the world that's around you? What if you did something like you can, um, you can go for a barefoot mindful walk, maybe not at this time of year, maybe wait for the weather to warm, but where you can feel the ground under your feet and really enjoy the sensation and the connection with the environment around you. So think about exercise. And again, it's about looking for opportunities to do those things that mindfulness does so well. Pause, focus your attention. Re re take a moment to recognize yourself again and give yourself permission to be the focus of your attention. So the last thing I want to talk about, therefore, is rest. Rest. Oh, rest. You'll be thinking, when is she going to get on to rest? That's what I want. Some rest, some relaxation. How do we make our rest more mindful? In a world that's so busy, how do we stop and how do we do that really well? So I want to just share a few tips as we close around mindful rest. And the first thing is to schedule your rest. How often is it that what we do is we put everything else in our diary and then we think, oh, I don't really have time for any me time this week. I don't have any headspace time. I don't have any relaxation time. I don't have any exercise time. What if you thought about in your week, what would be reasonable for me in terms of some slots? How often a week could I do this? How long could I do it for? And most of the research into stress management suggests that it isn't necessarily about what you do. It's about how you respond to really stressful moments. It's less about your overall stress level as well. It's about how you react and respond to it. So it might be the quick 30 minutes that you do every day at the end of your working day that signifies the end of the day that helps you switch off have a moment to yourself before you then go into your relaxation time. It may be that three times a week you do something that's longer. It may be that once a month you take a weekend out, depending if your lifestyle allows that. Or maybe there are some other habits and rhythms around retreat or time away and things like that that you can build in. But the important thing is guard it. Be intentional about it. Put it in your diary and then protect it. Because it's really, really important. It may be the most important thing you do in your week. Think about the value of ritual and habit. There is some really interesting research looking at coffee and coffee breaks around why are they so valuable to people? What's, what's the importance? What's the value of coffee? Why do we love the whole habit of it so much? And what those studies tend to show is that there is something about the ritual or the practice that is more important than the coffee. So although coffee is great and, hey, we're, caffeine is, is all very helpful, although it's not great if you're super stressed or anxious, but it is about the ritual and the habit that you have. So do you have a, a favorite coffee habit or ritual? Is there anyone else in the room this evening for whom the cup you drink your coffee out of really matters? Yeah, excellent. Some of you totally know what I mean. The rest of you, like my husband, think we are slightly crazy. But it really matters. There is something about ritual and pattern. I tell you, on a bad day, having a good coffee out of my favorite cup, and I am a better human being. And that's more than just the caffeine. It's the ritual. It's the habit. It's the self-soothing. It's the nurturing. So think about, can you gain from whether it's coffee or whether it's something else you do as part of rest or relaxation? Remember the stuff around that Danish craze of, what was it, hygge? Remember that? Making your space really comforting and soothing. A lot of that is about ritual and the, signifi the, sig the si significance, thank you, that's the word, of habit and practice and allowing and boundaring and really doing something well. It's, very, it's really a lot about mindfulness. So whatever it is that you're doing, can you make it extra effective by adding a habit, adding a ritual, adding something that really emphasizes the value of that moment? And the last thing I would say to you is when you are resting, don't 
pollute it. Don't mess it up. You've got the opportunity to have a restful moment. You scheduled it in your diary. You have your habit or your ritual, and then the flipping phone rings. Don't answer it. They can almost definitely wait. Don't don't mess it up. You know, you sit down to watch your favorite show, the next episode of a box set, and then what do you do while you're watching it? You're on your flipping phone. Put it away. I am so bad at this. My daughter pulls me up on this. She is so right. She's like, Mom, put your phone in a different room. She's right. Don't pollute your rest with something else. There was a recent study which made me chuckle, ironically, saying that actually apparently now to to be watching two screens at once, that's so like last year. People struggle with three. So apparently it is a recognized problem that people will be trying to watch TV. They're on their laptops and they're on their phones at the same time. Three things. Yeah, some of you are like, ooh, this is a new level of productivity I could achieve. That is not very mindful. If you are supposed to be resting, really rest. And genuinely, I am really bad at this, partly because I like being driven and busy and I do lots of stuff. So I love to go to the cinema because in the cinema, you have to stop. No one interrupts you. You can't do ironing and watch the program. I do quite like doing ironing and watching the telly. Something about restoring order. It's a habit. It's a rhythm. It's very soothing. I think it could be very mindful. Mindful ironing. Maybe we should write a book on that. But... Preserve your rest. Go to the cinema. Shut the door. Put your phone in a different room. Tell your kids that you no longer care about them. Whatever it requires, go somewhere else. It is so important to preserve your rest. Be mindful about how you do it. So I want to finish where we started. And and as I've said several times, if you're interested in mindfulness, if this has raised your interest, look into it properly. Don't think we've done this, therefore you've learned mindfulness. Find a good course, go find a good practitioner, learn it properly, because there are some fantastic skills. I would practice it regularly, do, it, do the whole thing properly. But remember that in some ways, one of the most valuable things about mindfulness is the permission to do something that we so rarely do in our 21st century world, which is value ourselves, pause, direct our attention to ourselves and not feel guilty about it. So feel permission to do that in whatever way you want. And if all else fails, go home, buy a big box of Maltesers and then eat them mindfully. And I'm sure that will help whatever's going on in your week.